0: Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Sarah Bae Jung of Bowdoin College. Uh, Sarah, it's been a while since we recorded. Um, Thanksgiving break transpired. How was your Thanksgiving break? Did you do anything special?
1: it It was lovely we we my family and I uh, went up to Acadia uh, National Park, which is here in Maine, and uh, is uh, empty around the Thanksgiving holiday, so I felt like we had some pretty glorious uh, vistas of mountains and oceans entirely to ourselves, so it was it was lovely. and you, how was your Thanksgiving? Um,
0: it was good. the fam. We, we road tripped to Florida to spend Thanksgiving with my uncle and his daughter, my cousin, and we were on the beach on the east coast of Florida, and that was amazing. But the road trip out there with a two-year-old and a four-year-old, it, it diminished our <laughs> uh, sense of the holiday spirit. And so on the return trip, Paige flew home with the girls, and I drove back by myself because that's... <laughs> That's just what we needed to do. But that it was is a
1: powerful cool. road trip right there.
0: Yeah, it was. It was in it, it was 3 days on the road and a 2-year-old just can't understand what's happening and just begins to melt down and decompensate very quickly. Um
1: Well, congrats on surviving. Yes,
0: indeed. And I'm also joined by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey,
2: how was your Thanksgiving? Tell us. It was great. I I cooked. I made turkey and side dishes and that's how I spent the day in the kitchen that's great (laughs) great with a turkey (laughs) that's amazing
1: how many guests were you cooking for
2: Uh, not that many I it was my immediate family so there were the four of us and then my parents were in town along with uh two friends and their two kids so 10 people that sounds like an amazing sort of like archetypally perfect American
0: Thanksgiving with all the imperfections I'm sure built in (laughs) So today we have three really exciting topics to discuss. We're going to talk about the Indiana University's PhD program in theater, which is um, under threat of closing. We are going to talk about video games and theater and performance studies. This is a promising and really interesting new um, subfield. And we will talk about Aster 2017, which uh, it feels like it was three weeks ago, but it was really just, I guess, two weeks ago in Atlanta. Um, Harvey and I were there. Sarah was not. Sarah is going to grill us about what we did and what we saw and who we saw. Before we get to those topics, uh, a few news items to round up. Um, as I mentioned, Aster 2017 happened. Uh, next year's Aster conference location and theme was announced. The theme is arousal. It will be in San Diego, November 15th through 18th. Program chairs Chase Bryngardner, Kristen Essen, and Kirsten Pullen are uh, steering the ship. And the deadlines for plenary working sessions and curated panel proposals is February 1st, 2018. Gwendolyn Alker at NYU published an essay in uh, the org called from a contract faculty member to her colleagues it's a feminist issue it's something that we could actually probably do a whole topic on but um, i wanted to just mention that if you guys haven't seen that on your facebook feeds it's really worth reading indecent paula vogel's play recently was uh, broadcast on PBS's Great Performances series and I guess will air on Broadway HD in January. Um the last thing I have here is just about the Mellon School of Theater and Performance Research which I know their their uh, call for proposals is going to drop soon. Sarah, do you have the inside scoop on that?
1: Yeah, so this is the the 2018 um Mellon School for Theater and Performance Studies uh, at Harvard University. Um, I believe, uh, Harvey, you've been a faculty, visiting faculty member there in the past. Um, and so uh, as of I, and I'll be back again this uh, this summer. The subject for this this year is going to be public humanities. And the deadline for the call for proposals is March 1st, uh, 2018. You can get more information at Mellon School dot dot that's great and i believe that runs like the like the second two weeks in june and um, and sarah when is the uga workshop that you're running right so that's the that's an neh uh summer institute for teachers in higher education uh that david saltz and i are co-directing that's at the university of georgia Um, that is going to be from june 17th through the 29th it's a program that um, introduces uh, faculty who are are already working or interested in in working on uh, incorporating digital technologies in theater and performance research there is some production and workshop but it's mostly on the study of and sort of how one can engage with new technologies in, in that practice Uh, But there's some great faculty who are going to be there. Uh, Philip Auslander, Amy Hughes, there's stuff on digital history. Troika Ranch uh, will be in residence. So it's a really exciting group of people. Um, And those applications, I believe, are also due on March 1st, 2018. And information for that project can be found at (laughs) NEH Digital Theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E, 2018.com.
2: I think that a really smart person would aim to spend the entire summer with Sarah. (laughs) Upper North, uh, East, and also in the South. Indeed. Get on it, on tap listeners.
0: Harvey, I know your plate has been very full lately, but are there any ATHA-related developments that our listeners should know about? No. Sounds good. (laughs) So for our first topic, It has been on everyone's mind that the Indiana University PhD program in theater um, is under threat of closure. To basically give you the, the framework of information that we have on November 9th, a dean named Larry Singel announced that the PhD program would be discontinued. A letter was sent to the department explaining the choice and Part of the rationale it was given was that the university wanted to back its MFA program, which it apparently sees as uh, providing training for people entering the theater and performance studies job market. You can read that letter on Noe Montez's uh, Twitter feed where he put up a, uh, screenshots of it. Since then, some additional information has come out. There was a very good, very informative. Um, article in the Indiana University student paper with interviews with some of the uh, people with inside information. Um, Noe Montez has also today, as we record, um, published an essay on uh, uh, the value of the PhD in theater at public institutions, which addresses this unfortunate decision. Uh, Harvey, are there things that you think should be on our listeners' minds as we contemplate the possibility of one of the oldest and most respected PhD programs in our field closing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons that was given by the dean at Indiana University for the closing down of the PhD program was uh, really a desire to, under budget constraints essentially, to reinvest uh, in a different manner, so essentially reinvest by cutting uh, a program. Uh, but. What I've been trying to argue, you know, via social media, is to say that that what the PhD program provides, you know, in addition to scholars into the future, um, is also uh, a rigorous introduction to theater history, criticism, and theory at the undergraduate level. So think about mm-hmm. teaching assistants, uh, people who teach the 100 level, 200 level classes, uh, and you don't want to gut that from an undergraduate student experience. Uh, and in response. Uh, the school has said that they're committed to offering those classes by hiring adjuncts. Uh, And my concern is that you don't want to uh, sort of create a situation where you're, you know, leaning upon contingent labor, um, you know, when you already have a very successful model. um, you know, So we should push back against that because the moment they decide they're going to hire in contingent labor adjunct faculty, they've already decided to invest in theater history and criticism and theory classes, uh, but just at a lower level. So we need to call that out whenever we can. So there's benefits to the university that go beyond just the
0: maintenance of a prestigious program and the generation of knowledge at a high level. Yeah.
2: And and, and, and I, think it, I think there's also a way of, of thinking about this because PhD students within universities, uh, not consistently, uh, but often will write about regional issues in theater. And so to cut a PhD program at Indiana University is to cut future scholarship looking at theater in the Midwest, theater in Indiana. Um, and that's something that I don't think they've fully recognized.
1: Well, and it also brings up, I mean, this is one of the points that that Noe mentioned as well, which is the public versus private. Uh, you know, of course, you know, we I, I imagine we all agree, and I probably don't need to s- remind our listeners, but... The idea of the public commons that theater thrives on, right, the social environment, the emphasis on a local engagement in a in a kind of here and now, wherever that happens, right? I mean, that thrives when there is maximal diversity and perspectives in the room. And one of the things that, that Noé points to in his article for HowlRound is, is the concentration of elite programs being in private universities and that increasingly jobs in the field are going to graduates of, of those universities, you know, which are primarily the uh, private, which creates a very different kind of academic experience. It invites different kinds of undergraduates. And so if we really seed some of our thinking and engagement, particularly at those, at those 100 level or introductory courses, right, where we're not necessarily just reaching out to students who are thinking about becoming theater makers, but we're really cultivating future audiences. You know, now it's not just a matter of, you know, who's cultivating those audiences and what perspectives that they bring to them, but also then who are the faculty who have the most security, who are taking the most risks, who are, you know, working across the field, who are engaging and asking new questions. If they're coming increasingly from only a few programs and those programs are are at private institutions, then we're really narrowing the scope and the perspective and the engagement that absolutely. that that the field has and that it seems to me as a public exercise of, of what theater is becomes really dangerous if that if those perspectives become too narrow
0: absolutely so it's not it's about regional diversity, as Harvey says. It's also about the diversity of methodology, of ways of working, of training. Indiana University has an excellent track record of placing its PhD students into tenure track jobs. This is not a yeah. case where the program is not doing a good job by its students. So there are brilliant scholars coming out of IU who are teaching all over the country and adding, uh, you know, maintaining the tradition of how they were taught there and adding different ways of working, different ways of reading, and I think that's an ex- ex- excellent point that that you and and Noe make, Sarah, which is that if these public institutions start to try to save little bits of money by marginalizing these programs, you'll end up with this kind of kind of homogeny to the way people think and write, because a greater proportion of scholars are going to be coming from a few programs. Um, well, and also
1: it's, it's who you see as models. I mean, I'm, I'm You know, I'm I'm, I'm the product of a public university PhD, and the students that I worked with and and talked with and and, uh, learned alongside at the University of Michigan were amazing.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the rationale that was given and uh, try to, I don't know, read some tea leaves here, because I think that... Um, When cases like this happen, when an administration moves to close down one of the programs in our field, it's instructive to see how they're doing it or how they're rationalizing it. And I think we should acknowledge that we don't have all the information here. I've been in contact with some people affiliated with the program. I don't want to pretend that I know what the real thought process is, but I just want to make some observations that in the information that... Dean Singel has put out, there are a couple of different rationales. One has to do with an external review that was conducted a few years ago that recommended the revision of the program so that it would have more of a global focus, be more in step with trends in the field. This is a very normal thing to come out of a departmental review. And so there was work to create a global theater and performance studies PhD that might be affiliated with different units on campus, with anthropology, and uh, that this was moving forward. And Dean Single said that in the effort to create that, there was insufficient faculty interest in bringing that about. So that's one rationale. Another rationale that was given was that they wanted to focus on the MFA degree. And this part of the rationale I found really objectionable, and I let the administration know it in a letter that I wrote to Dean Singel and the provost and the president of the university, because the suggestion that he makes is that there's one sort of uniform market for faculty positions in theater and performance studies, and that you can get those jobs with an MFA degree, or you can get them with a PhD degree because they're both terminal degrees. In a way, he's echoing some of the reasoning that came out of that column in the Chronicle several years ago. And so he says because the MFA program is in high is, is doing well and in high demand, they're going to focus their resources on that. One of my objections to this is that it suggests that all the jobs are the same, that there's no discrimination between MFA training and PhD training within the job market, which is absolutely not true. Yeah. And it also pretends that there's no value to the scholarly research that's uh, coming out of people trained in PhDs. So. I think it's good for us to value the MFA degree, value arts training, but we shouldn't do it to the point where we think that an MFA degree and a PhD degree are the same, and therefore we should all just spend you know fewer years getting the MFA degree. It's to pretend that there's no b- body of scholarly knowledge to act in that way, and I found that really objectionable. I don't know what perspectives the two of you might have, having been chairs of departments, having uh, worked in administration, to my mind, It seems as though what's not being spoken about here is that perhaps there are budgetary reasons or maybe some sort of administrative streamlining that they want to do. It just doesn't make sense from an outside perspective that there would be a strong advantage to closing down this program.
1: Well, I I mean, I think Harvey probably has more insight into this than I do. I mean, I will say that when I started the graduate program at uh, University of Buffalo, um, one of the things that, that stands out very quickly as you're sort of preparing budgets and going through that is is just how expensive uh, graduate students are, because of uh, benefits and um, and you know and tuition waiver. And so to, when you sort of tally up, you know even even at a place that gives relatively modest stipends, you know what a graduate student costs versus what they contribute. You know if you're doing it just by the numbers you'll save significant sums by replacing grad students with adjuncts in part because you're you're getting rid of health benefits um, and other kinds of fringe benefits I mean that's the biggest the biggest thing that you can that you can do now within the context of what I can only imagine is the overall operating budget of Indiana University you know I think those savings are probably paltry you know, but as you go further down the line, you know, from decanal level to department level, those that amount of money can can add up. My thought, I have, I won't even call it a guess. I have no idea, but my thought is that there may also be across campuses. I know that this has come up in a few conversations I've had. You know, there's increasing demand in certain areas, uh, computer science chief among them, where you almost can't hire enough faculty fast enough to fill. You know, demand. And so you've got classes that are doubly, triply enrolled from the minute they're posted and, and competing over students. So if you're trying to shift around PhD lines within a decanal unit, this might also be part of the, the thought process behind it.
2: You know, if you, if you think about public universities being subject to state budget cuts, you know, with every year within certain states, you know, the allotment being slashed by 1%, 2%, sometimes 5%. You know and then trying to and 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 so so the result is you have departments that are already pretty lean. And then when asked to cut back even more, whether it's two percent, three percent, or five percent, it comes at the cost of a program. Uh, and we've seen this in in other universities uh, in which uh, a a battle essentially takes place you know uh, with among the faculty, uh, you know which area cannibalizes the other? Like you know, is it, do you lose? Uh, your commitment to production. Do you commit? Do, do you lose your commitment to MFA programs, which also certainly involve production at some level? Uh, do you lose your commitment to the PhD? Uh, and in some places, we've seen the PhD thrive and the production ends suffer. And in this case, it's certainly a case where the commitment to the MFA in practice is is surviving, and and the PhD is not. Uh, but the bigger issue is that, it, as you're saying, Sarah, it doesn't cost that much money in the grand scheme of things. You know, if you're looking to cut funding, you know, there are much larger price ticket items across the university than a theater department. And certainly a PhD program doesn't really cost that much, which is the surprising thing about their decision to suspend admission, because they had a viability plan, as, as, as panel noted, you know, that looked a lot like the University of Washington's uh, interdisciplinary program. Certainly, there is the cost of PhD stipends. While they are greater than an adjunct cost, it seems like they've already found a way to attend to faculty costs to support the PhD. You know? yeah. So there is a sustainability plan in hand that's not being embraced. Now, my understanding is that the university has said that it is open to admitting students for fall 2019 admission, but not fall 2018 admission.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think um, one thing I'd say to our listeners is that it doesn't seem as though the door is fully shut. So I sent a letter to Dean Singel and copied the provost and the president of Indiana University, and I heard back directly from the provost via email. Her name's Lauren Robel, and she said that they are going to look at ways in the next year to try to keep the Ph.D. program going. And so I think that the end of the story is not written. And her response suggests that the administration there is actually listening to outside voices, and they're interested in how this looks from the outside. So I would I would um, urge our listeners to, to take a minute and write to those administrators and let them know the value of this program.
2: Yes, and to keep doing so you know, maybe once a month so that it doesn't get lost. Yes, the, the, the gears turn slowly. Yeah.
0: So why don't we leave that discussion there um, and abruptly transition into a topic that's less concerning and more exciting (laughs) and more about a a positive uh, vision for the future, Uh, we wanted to talk about video games and theater and performance studies. So we looked at an article by Clara Fernandez-Vara called "The Plays, uh, Plays the Thing, a Framework to Study Video Games as Performance. This is from 2009. It's not hot off the presses, but it's a good introductory survey of the theoretical frameworks that would allow us to think about video games as performance. It brings up some interesting questions about mediality, genre, art form, um, and the nature of performance as a concept. But I wanted to start this off by asking Sarah to maybe give us a bit more of an informed view of how video games in particular are being engaged with by scholars in the field of theater and performance studies.
1: So there are, uh, well, first I have to do like just a quick shout out to Mike Sell, who's been writing more recently about, about video games, and I believe ran a working group at Aster on video games and as performance. And video games re- connect very closely to, to other fields that have been, uh, sort of subfields that have been developing around questions of immersive performance or interactive performance or participatory performance, and that kind of genre. I mean, in many ways, if you think about a show, uh, you know, really, I think pretty widely known at this point, like Sleep No More, Mm -hmm. um, there's no overt digital media in that production per se, but the logic of one's participation and engagement with it follows very much the logic of a kind of video game. Uh, It's user-driven, it's you're working within parameters that are clearly defined, if ambiguously, if their meaning even if their meaning is ambiguous. And so I think there's a lot of interesting, uh, interesting domains and dimensions to this work that are sort of going in a bunch of, a bunch of different areas, even if they don't say video game per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike is certainly doing some of that work. Um, Sarah Brady has a great essay in her, her book, Performance Politics and the War on Terror, a chapter called War the Video Game, where she goes to an army recruiting center that is also um, in part about sort of playing the, the video game army of one, but you can play other video games in that context as well, and sort of this kind of blurring together of those. Mm-hmm. I think for me, what's most interesting, and I, I kind of came to video games through collaborations with folks working in virtual reality. So it was projects that were more based around the storytelling elements of video games, but it but it drew out many of the same kind of parameters or the same kind of characteristics. So goal-oriented, points that one could score, a sense of competition of of oneself against the game or against the environment. And there's there's a couple of different ways that this is shaping up. One is looking at video games as modes of performance and looking particularly at performance studies as a way of understanding the specific user position of a video game player, right, in which you are partly a spectator, but you are partly a creator or co-creator. And of course, what you are spectating is highly dependent upon what you do as a, as a user. right? So we can say that the game is good, but it can be better or worse based on my engagement with it. I will say right now, I am a lousy video game player. I blame my mother for not letting me do it often enough in my youth. Ah. Uh, and encouraging me to go outside and and you know do other things with my time, which I think was really destructive to my long term scholarly potential. See, but- I,
0: I got the I got the opposite education. My dad would take me to the video arcade when I was barely big enough to walk so I've been a lifelong gamer so let me uh, just
1: finish this one thought I'm sorry yeah. I, then you can but this, so, so it's, this idea of like using video games using performance as a way of understanding video games but also right. then looking at how the logic of video games and digital media are now having this this kind of spreading or viral effect on the way we are engaging with the other kind of theatrical and performance forms even when there's no overt gameplay to be had so um, anyway that, I'll, I'll sort of leave yeah. it there as my preamble
0: well this is interesting. I think you know part of what I, I took away with uh, took away from reading that article by Fernandez Vara was a bit of confusion about what the value is of framing video games as performance as opposed to relying on I don't know film theory, media theory. But your summary, Sarah, I think sort of brings to mind an answer to that question, which is that it's insufficient to think of video games strictly through the theory of gameplay, Hoisinger or Kaiwa, but that if you sort of merge game, you know, the theory of gaming with performance and its concepts of agents and actors, scenography, scriptedness, then you actually start to glimpse theoretical models that are perfectly suited to video games. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, well, I mean that's kind of what what, Fernand, uh, what Fernandez Vara presents, right? She sort of lays out these these models uh, of a video game or of code, and then how we can break those down into the same kind of uh, the same visual model that we, we that we would use to look at at, at theater. Um, I think it's also somewhat responding, um, and I, I mean I don't know if she's done this uh, exactly, but there's also been in, in game studies. You know, there's the whole uh, long sort of narratology versus Luddic debate, you know, and how is a video game a narrative, uh-huh. and do we look at it in those contexts, um, you know, people like Janet Murray, and then you have the whole Copenhagen school, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of contesting the notion of the narrative as a as a theoretical framework of games. And so in some ways, performance became a useful way of of charting a space between those two kind of rival methodologies. Ian Bogost is a great scholar of games who's, I think, very nicely summarized many different positions and then sort of raised incredibly useful ways of approaching a a number of different, you know, game environments and and what those mean theoretically. So if people are interested, I would would highly recommend his stuff.
2: And and what I appreciate, uh, specifically out of the Fernandez Vara article, is this attention to the ways in which gaming activates the and animates the spectator slash audience member. Uh, Mm -hmm. So specifically looking at, you know, not only sort of different forms of witnessing, but how one's awareness of the performance or awareness of themselves alongside others as co-performers emerges from active engagement. You know, so it's certainly there is, as Sarah was saying, a link with some of the immersive and interactive types of theater, uh, but it also moves a slightly different direction because of the greater possibilities available to multiple people at the same time scripting or, or at least creating that experience.
0: You know, it's it's funny, this this all is sort of like a Wayback Machine experience for me, because as an undergraduate, I was interested in video games. I actually did an independent study where I wrote about Street Fighter II. <laughs> and I wasn't thinking about it as performance in that moment, but I was cognizant of the way Even in 70s and 80s when video games were new, it was already a spectator activity. You would see sort of groups of people around a player at a stand-up console machine, watching the competition, and this is not very different from things that you would think of as like playing darts in a bar. It's not necessarily a special thing, but it, it, there is spectatorship built into it. And you know, this article is from 2009. This is before Twitch, but Twitch has in recent years become a major phenomenon. Twitch, uh, if, if people don't know, is a, a platform that allows people to broadcast themselves playing games, and it's immense. So that you have millions of people who subscribe to different Twitch user channels and watch them on this, you know, your screen becomes an image of their video game screen, um, but you can hear them speak and and hear them sort of narrate their play. So there's now this sort of broadly distributed spectatorship phenomenon, which uh, Fernandez Vara mentions a precursor to somewhere in the article, but now is quite large. I guess part of my question in reading this and considering this topic is What is it that we can bring to video games that these other conceptual models and methodologies do not? And I guess the second question is, assuming that the answer to that question is a satisfying one, how do you make the case for video games and um, video games being a kind of genre of performance or genre of theatrical display?
1: I'll take the second question first, which is to say, uh, you know, and I'll kind of go with with Brecht, which is to say that nothing needs less definite, you know, less justification than pleasure. Uh, So I think, you know, if we sort of think about an ever expanding broad spectrum, like why not have this one on it? It's a super fun way of engaging. Um, I've been on committees for two dissertations, Paul Masters at Tufts University and currently with Will Lewis, who's at University of Colorado Boulder. And both of them have been doing work, as have a lot of other people. but I've thinking about the changing role of the spectator in relationship to these kinds of modes of of play and engagement. And so I think that not only and it's a it's a kind of reciprocal relationship, right? So theater and performance and expectations of the viewer are absolutely informing how video games. Happen, you know, they're based, of course, on cinematic conventions, but they also, in terms of, you know, haptic uh, exp- experience. I mean, there's there's there are many things, much of which Fernanda Vara sort of charts of of points of intersection between a theatrical experience or attending a live performance and and interacting with a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that uh, you know that that impact is then. Reading and showing up on uh, on our forms uh, of theater and performance. So I think it's something that any anyone interested in contemporary theater and performance, whether that's con- you know current productions of old plays or the development of new work, should be uh, invested in and thinking about. The other is that performance studies is you know the study of things in transition and dynamism and looks at things that are ironically simultaneously local and global right mm. we look we look at playwrights that get produced all over the world and narratives that have traveled and you know moved extensively but we're often dealing with what is it at this point in this building on this day mm-hmm. from my seat And so video games similarly kind of have an all-encompassing embrace, as well as attention to the specificity of what platform do you use, where do you play, what's your engagement, things like that.
0: Well, let me take the opportunity to put on my skeptic hat, because I think listeners to the podcast will know that uh, Sarah and I perhaps have different prejudices about uh, the, the, the definition of performance that would include digital media of all forms. So... I don't think I disagree on the answers to these questions, but I want to be a bit skeptical and kick the tires on the idea that because it's dynamic, it's performance or because it's, you know, because it it provides pleasure or that there's something, you know, enjoyable about performance studies takes on this stuff that they're actually uniquely well suited.
1: I don't know that I would think, say, it's uniquely well-suited. I think there are lots of different ways that you can use to approach video games. I just happen to think that theater and performance methodologies, particularly because of the attention and and investment in the spectator position, Mm -hmm. are, you know, have something to offer to that conversation and reciprocally are being shaped and affected both by spectators but also by, you know, by creators. Yeah. Uh by the existence, if not the engagement, direct engagement with video games.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think I disagree with that. I think I like the idea of there being a kind of specificity to performance studies that has to do with presence, with the present body. But one answer to my initial question was that that occurred to me is that in a way the the performance that happens on a screen in a video game is a lot like puppetry. And no no one would argue that puppetry is not theatrical or that puppetry is not performance. But in puppetry, as with video games, the user, the actor, the human agent is operating an object outside of his, her own body. And in a way, it's just a distinction of the kind of mechanics that externalize that avatar, right? So that when I'm, you know, playing Metal Gear or Mario, in a way, the action is to manipulate a a, a little puppet sort of outside of myself in a, you know, represented heightened space. And that in that way, it seems as though theater studies, theories of puppetry, theories of drama and performance might have unique tools for video game analysis that other fields like rhetoric and media would not. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, And certainly you can think of Gina Bloom's work by the Knave, Uh, which I will give credit to Elizabeth Hunter, (laughs) you know, my advisee uh, for uh, all these conversations that we've had uh, on gaming uh, and therefore has equipped me to be somewhat (laughs) capable in this discussion. Uh, One thing I would like to add is that uh, a justification for including video games within theater departments, specifically as opposed to performance studies departments, uh, might be the perspective that within theater, theater is the province of storytelling that invites a a level of embodied engagement. Uh, and uh, what video games do is not only the creation of a video game is a form of storytelling, uh, but it also activates the spectator and the performer, or the spectator as performer, as part of the narrative, Uh, and that's a different form of engagement than the structure of cinema studies or or film studies. Uh, And it seems to me that, uh, as has already been pointed out, video games... Is, is like the ball being tossed up in the air, sort of, uh, you know, and who's jumping for it. Is it gonna be communication studies and film or is it gonna be theater and performance studies? Uh, mm-hmm. And we can all acknowledge the fact it's a huge growth area. There's lots of potential. Uh, so who wants to own it? Uh, and I don't see a downside in theater and performance studies embracing it actively. So there's
0: a lot more to say here, but I think we need to move on. Um, Aster 2017, we were there. I saw Harvey there. Sarah you were you were reading the hashtags
1: I was I was following I was reading both of them the you know <laughs> Aster 2017 and the Aster 17 as well as the extended debate between those two, of which it should be. I love uh, how we which, do this which every Which comprised yeah. at least two days of the conference was, hey, you should be using the other hashtag. And so with, I'm, two,
0: with 280 characters, we might as well just have all the hashtags. All the right?
1: hashtags. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. I guess my first question to both of you would be, I mean, obviously, you know, the plenaries are pretty key events, and it, it seemed like the the event with Marvin Carlson was was pretty significant and uh, I saw that you know Jessica Burson also was on and Tracy Davis were on another plenary uh, together so I'm just kind of curious like how were the how are the plenaries like what was what was the cool stuff that came out of those?
2: You know, I really enjoyed uh, seeing Jorge Huerta uh, on stage in in a plenary session and apparently after all these years it was his very first time uh, speaking before the full uh, oh, no kidding. membership of, of ASTR. Huh. And
1: oh is that because, that's because they don't do speeches for the awards, right? Like he won the the big award but he didn't okay. Well, I guess this was the
2: first time giving a plenary uh yeah, talk. Yeah. So let me correct
0: myself on that one. I I was not at that plenary session. Um I would say the uh, I saw numerous good plenary papers, um, but Stacy Wolf's I thought was particularly oh, excellent right. on the amateur body, and she profiled the work of an of an artist named Michael Kelly uh, and a work of his called Day Is Done, which is um, features. Sort of reconstructed amateur performances, reconstructed extracurricular activities like rallies, dances, so it was part of her talk was a comparison of you know his source material and then the reconstructions that he made so that was a fascinating paper
2: it was also a really great study of the importance of community theater uh, and how mm-hmm. the enthusiasm the passion the uh, excitement you know, that surrounds theater is really enabled by amateurs coming together and staging works you know, before their community. And so, so I thought that was a really strong assertion of why we need to, to spend more time thinking about you know, theater that exists uh, in the community, not necessarily on professional stages.
0: I saw another good plenary paper. Uh, Jason Fitzgerald, uh, who's a graduate student at Columbia University, gave a great paper on Amiri Baraka. It's called "The Beast and the Magician: Staging Amiri, Bar- uh, Amiri Baraka's Black Humanism." And I don't. It, it featured one of Amiri Baraka's lesser-known or early plays that I wasn't familiar with, and I don't remember the title of it. But it was um, it was quite a good quite a good talk.
1: Sometimes the grad students, man, they they come out with like super excellent work it can be really it's really fun i love seeing those kinds of uh, you know intergenerational multi-rank presentations yeah. they they do
0: and but let me let me use this opportunity to say and and jason's paper was excellent but the part of the general feedback i heard about aster was that some people think that in an effort to have more emerging scholars and graduate students presenting at plenaries, that there's a sense that the overall level of polish and professionalism in the plenaries has changed. And right. I, I think it's safe to report that there's some consternation about that, that in the past, you expected to see a lot of senior scholars, a lot of people presenting stuff from their first book, that it was kind of a, a more aspirational thing, and that there's you know some of the and i'm talking about the broad mix of plenaries not anything in particular but that i did hear some uh concern about the sort of level of polish of work that people were presenting on the plenaries
1: that's an interesting uh sort of debate maybe for aster cuz you know aster is is a really i mean this is the other thing i was going to ask you guys about right because Astor is, is 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 i think unusual if not unique in in the field for it's kind of what you know what I would call like it's mixed methods right so you've got working mm-hmm. groups you've got panels but you've also got plenaries that that you know it's it's that sort of in the working groups are always a bit odd it seems to me in terms of their engagement with audiences or not mm-hmm. and how that and how those presentations happen because there's this idea that work is happening someplace else and how does that manifest in the conference and so the the, the it seems like maybe the plenaries fulfill a specific function in an astro conference that they might be slightly different than the way they do, and so I'm wondering how how is your experience of ASTER as a as a whole? How is that mix working in terms of going in and out of working groups versus panels of papers mm-hmm. versus plenaries?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's changed. I mean, I I will say that I served on the program committee this year for ASTR Atlanta, and for the plenaries, Can we blame uh, you. I, I will I will take all blame, <laughs> and. Uh, and for the plenary sessions, uh, I know that it they were blind reviewed, uh, so th- so it was at the the proposals were evaluated on their own merits, you know, without the identities of of the submitter being known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thought was this was to avoid just having big names there, you know, irrespective of the quality of the work. Um, so uh, I can say that that you know what rose the top to the point of making these the, the selection was selected on a very sort of, on a blind review, kind of peer-reviewed basis. I served on a program committee
0: a few years ago, and it was the same process. So you'd read an abstract, you wouldn't know the name or the, you know, sort of professional status of the writer. And I think that is part of what, you know, generates the mix of work that you see on the plenary. But, you know, sometimes you'll read a a 300-word abstract and think, this is an amazing topic. This is a really exciting abstract. But that that doesn't always translate into... Someone using that those twenty minutes in the optimal way. So it's I think it's something to think
1: about. Can I make a going to say like you know a little bit playing devil's advocate, but but also kind of I don't know being persnickety. I'll just say I I have real concerns about the blind review process uh, because giving a paper, particularly giving a paper on a plenary and, and in the context of Aster, is not it's not just giving a paper and it's not just be, the ability to write a paper. Right, it's a performance. And it's a performance that being on the plenary has the expectation of a large audience. Uh, you and, know. and
0: emulation. I mean, when my first Asters, I would go and I would go to those plenaries and think, "Wow, this is what the best work that's being done is. This is what how I need to think about presenting
1: my own work." Well, and and I just think of like really key, like a kind of amazing performances. I mean, I don't know if it was like Aster. 2001 or 2002 when Andrew Sofer ate an unconsecrated communion wafer. As part of you know, as as part you know, part of the research of his stage life of props and as a you know, as as someone raised Catholic right, I and I felt like every other Catholic in the room just like went you know, oh my God right. I mean, it's like really a kind of a visceral moment of I don't think you're supposed to do that. So I mean, it was like it was a really great it was a really great performance. Lawrence Senelik has given some really amazing performances uh, beyond what the paper did, and and I just I agree I, I kind of I agree with what you're saying here, panel. Like you know, the ability to write a really well crafted kind of beautiful 300 word abstract is not necessarily does not necessarily correlate immediately to the ability to give a really great 20 minute presentation and i would also say that as as one progresses in one's career i am i can imagine that there's a sense of like they know i'll give a good presentation here's my abstract mm-hmm. i don't have yeah. time because i'm running a department and a graduate program and i've got mm-hmm. you know you know on 12 dissertation committees i don't have time to sit and carefully craft a, a beautifully written 300 word abstract because i am i might be relying a little bit on my reputation to mm-hmm. to kind of carry me through and 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 that may be wrong and that may be you know we don't want to behave that way but it also just seems to me that i don't know i'm 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 ambivalent at best about the peer about the blind the blind review and and if if asked directly i would say yeah no don't do that
2: what what i can say um uh is that you know across the plenaries that i i witnessed there was a range of of engagements with theater right so Mm -hmm. it was everything from uh talking about native american and indigenous performance uh to as we talked about previously um uh, you know, Chicano and Chicana uh, theater, as well as an amateur theater, uh, but also looking at sort of theater and disability. Uh, you know, and, and there was a range of engagements around embodiment uh, and bodies uh, of difference uh, that it was unique and not often something you'd see at pretty much any of our professional associations. Uh, so, I, so I thought that was really dynamic.
1: There and and perhaps the reason why I'm wrong. No, no, no. I don't think you're
0: wrong. I think there was a lot of good stuff going on in, in all the different sessions. I, to, to return to your earlier question, Sarah, I think, I think I've think i learned not to drop in on working sessions that aren't the one I'm participating in. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it's difficult to I, – I think the the function of the working session is for people working on that topic who have very specific things to say to each other and to help each other with related work. It doesn't lend itself to – the spectatorship in the same way. Although the working session that I was in, which was run by VK Preston and Julia Fawcett, had um, a fair number of um, outside observers, and they sort of joined us in our breakout groups, and it was kind of fun and exciting. So it's I love that format. I think it's hard to do extremely well, the working session, but it I love how it's a challenge in that way, and I think it's one of the reasons I really like Aster. And, and this oh, yeah. is where that
2: third thing comes in, which is the rated panels. So there's mm-hmm. like you have the plenaries, the curated panels which aren't plenaries, uh, and then also these working sessions. And I agree with you, panel. The the working sessions are panels that I just totally avoid. I mean, it's it's like a room of people talking about a movie you haven't seen. <laughs> you know, and I just yeah. skip yeah. that. Uh, but if you're not what if, if there's not a plenary schedule and there's only working groups, then what do you do if you don't want to go into a working group as a non-participant? Yeah. And these and the curated panels, you know, offer and an escape so it's not the scale of a plenary but it's a chance for another set of conversations so I, and that's where the Marvin Carlson uh, book discussion came in
0: that was a highlight. I mean, Sarah, do you want to? Do you have other questions? Do you want to ask us about highlights? Are there? Because I, I don't. We we have to mention the Marvin Carlson session. We have to mention some big awards that were given out.
1: Yeah. No. Well. So, uh, you know, Harvey, you were on a member of that that panel, right? Of the, the Marvin Carlson. Um, and I followed. I mean, that one I actually happened to be on as people were live tweeting, which I will also say is really funny when like you get a, a panel with a bunch of concentrated active tweeters because you're getting the same idea 17 times. Mm-hmm. You know one one after another and um you're like I got it I got it you know move on people but um I'm just sort of curious you know what happened like what did you, you know what was that like what was the what was the what was the best moment or the best comment or the most interesting sort of element to come out of that that conversation for you
2: yeah i mean i think that it was a, a treat to to sit there alongside marvin and have him reflect upon 50 years or ish of theater going. Uh, and that man sees more theater than, you know, the three of us combined plus like 10 other people uh, will oh, ever
1: see that I mean, question.
2: He, like he's at the theater all the time. Even when he lived in Ithaca, you know, he would drive to New York four to six hours, see as many as two or three shows and then drive back in one day. Uh, and it was just staggering. Uh, not only the things he seen, but the level of recall that he has uh, about his experiences you know, in New York primarily across several decades. It was great. And, and Harvey was on stage. All the,
0: all the panelists um, spoke for a few minutes on a keyword. Harvey, your word was New York and the other people up there. It was a great, great selection of people sort of celebrating Marvin. Um, the highlight for me was when he was asked to explain why he's a staunch proponent of spelling the word theater with an R-E instead of an E-R. Um, and I won't bore the listeners with my recollections of it, although it had something to do with the New York Times at a certain point, deciding that theater was spelled with an E-R, and then much of the country followed that, but the rest of us, and by us, I mean me and others, stayed behind. But that was phenomenal. I know that Amy Hughes, who I think I saw in the audience, is working on an article on this very question, and I hope we do a segment about it in the future, but it was great to hear Marvin Carlson explain why theater should be spelled with an R-E in the United States? We have to. We we should probably wrap up and get to drafts, but we have to mention that um, Hillary Miller won the Bernard Hewitt Award oh, for yes, her book. Oh yes, I saw that. That was her excellent. Book, Drop Dead Performance in Crisis in 1970s New York, which I think is was brought out by Northwestern University Press. And then Sandra Richards won the Distinguished Scholar Award, and she was beautifully introduced by uh, our own Harvey Young. So Harvey, you're a
1: busy guy, Harvey. I was busy.
0: If I didn't tell you <laughs> if I didn't tell you in the hallways, I wanted to tell you now that was a, it was a really great introduction and, and tribute to your valued colleague and, and of course, a well-deserved award.
2: Yeah, Sandra Richards, uh, absolutely amazing woman, uh, a pioneer in the area of African diasporic uh, theater and criticism. Uh, she's been uh, a founder of a theater company in the West Coast, uh, worked closely with Danny Glover and Anna DeVere Smith. Uh, She uh, was a mentor of many, many people, including myself, Patrick Johnson, among others. Uh, Just a really good, smart, kind, generous, amazing person.
1: Why don't
0: we move on to our drafts, guys? Listeners know that our drafts are our stray thoughts, our works in progress, our ideas related to theater and performance studies that may or may not make their way into published form. Why don't I go first for a change, and I'll try not to go too, too long. It is related to our second topic, video games and theater. At the beginning of the month, I went to LSU in Baton Rouge um, with a handful of other um, American and French scholars to work on this NEH-funded project called V-espace or V-space. And this is a a project headed up by Jeffrey Leishman, who's in French studies um, at LSU, but has also been to Astor and is a a theater scholar, works on 18th century France. And Francoise Rubelin, who's a professor of dramatic literature at the University of Nantes in France. And the project is to build a VR-based game slash experience that puts the user in a 18th century fairground theater in France. And so it was two days of deliberations and planning and debate about what this space would be, what this gaming experience would be. We got a chance to try out some recent technology, uh, VR technology from Oculus, which I had never done before. And it was just a fascinating project, and I'm really excited about the future of it. As a footnote, I wanted to bring up one of the more exciting discoveries for me along the way, which was um, mixed reality games. And I know that uh, I think today John Muse has actually posted an article about Mixed reality games on Facebook, and people should follow up with that. I'll put the link on the website. But one of the collaborators at this event, his name is Ben Samuels, and he's a computer scientist at the University of New Orleans. And he's created, along with some collaborators from his graduate school years, a game called Bad News, which is I'm desperate to play it. It sounds so interesting and unique and weird. In a nutshell. To play Bad News, you sit down at a table, and on the other side of the table is someone behind a curtain that they open and close. You have a tablet, like an iPad, they have a tablet like an iPad. At the beginning of the game, your iPad informs you that you're a deputy mortician in this small town, USA, and that you have to go into this town and find the next of kin of a body that's been discovered, okay? So you follow the instructions on the iPad and your engagement with this town is a series of interactions with the person on the other side of the table who's essentially operating the game for you. That person gets information about who the character is that they're playing from the iPad. There's a couple of really interesting things about this game. One is that every time you play the game, the software generates randomly a a totally unique small town based on hundreds of years of history and families multiplying and institutions, businesses, schools, clubs being formed and, and developing com- and complexity. So every time you're playing it, you're exploring a new virtual town that only exists for that playthrough. The other super interesting thing about this is that the object of the game is just to deliver the news to the next of kin. You deliver the bad news. And once you found the next of kin and you tell them your loved one is dead, the game is over. You win. So they've made this game. They've made this game experience out of one of the worst jobs you can have, <laughs> right? Um, and I want to play it so bad, uh, Ben. If you're listening, I will be in touch soon because I want to see if we can play it over a, a Skype call or something. But this to me is fascinating, and I hope that people will start to write about it.
1: It sounds really interesting. So, is it how does one act? I mean, how does one acquire the game? Like, do you download it onto two iPads and I think buy were, a little curtain that you put across your kitchen table? Or
0: well, I think that might be like the ultimate idea of it. But for what from what I can tell, you have to find one of the um, uh, developers of it and play with them. Ben Samuels, um, who was the guy I met at Baton Rouge, actually has a background as a TV actor, and he. Mm-hmm. Was would improvise these roles. To me, it sounds like a great thing that you could play with a friend who enjoys improvising. But to my knowledge, you have to play it by being in a physical space with with one of these guys.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah, Harvey, what's your draft? So my so, so my my draft, uh, which is part of the reason why I lose my voice, is that I've been just been giving endless 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 interviews um, with um, various press outlets on Meghan Markle, uh, who is uh, now engaged to Prince Harry and England. Um, you know, and so it's just the sheer number of conversations that I've had. And, and Megan's a person just as a background. Um, I taught back in spring 2003 in a tiny seminar. There were nine of us. We sat in a circle um, and we just talked a lot, <laughs> you know. And, and she's a wonderful person. I like her a lot, um, but it's just been overwhelming. Just the sheer number of, of media requests um and then people try and ask gotcha questions um yeah it's 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 been it's been a second job actually
1: what's the what's the uh what's the biggest gotcha question you've been asked so far Han? well the, big, the biggest um, gotcha, gotcha
2: question is um you know yeah, th- you know, like they'll say things like so i'm assuming she was always really happy here and you're like college oh, students are never always happy you know and they're like how so and you're like i have no comment on that <laughs> you know like and, yeah. and you start speaking more generally like well college is a place where you know one comes into their own and that 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 occurs for all students you know who you know learn to engage with people who have different sort of political beliefs and uh backgrounds and you know it's it's where we become aware of ourselves in that process you know but they're looking for that moment where something uh a scandalous has occurred uh to write about like, stop you know it's that question and the other question which um uh isn't a gotcha question but i i, I failed to Answer correctly if there's a correct answer, which is how do I feel about her being uh, a princess within quotes, uh, and and I, I, I don't have a feeling about that. I'm I just think- happy she's personally happy. And that's that's about it. Yeah.
1: I think I think you need to like you know learn one of the songs from Frozen, Harvey. <laughs> <So the laughs> next time somebody asks you that question, I think you just like bust out.
2: Uh, Do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I did say. I did say at one point today because I I promised myself that I would give no more interviews. Uh, and then there was someone from the uh, London um, Mail that that flew in to meet me meet, meet with me without contacting me in advance. Uh, and um, um, uh, so I met with her, and that's my last one. Uh, and I might regret that one. Uh, you know, I I said kind of jokingly that, you know, but also kind of true on this side of the Atlantic, we have no idea what a duchess is, um, <laughs> you know, like, because Disney has sort of framed us with princesses or nothing. <laughs>
0: so. That's, right. Uh, That's Har- right. Harvey, this is another installment from your very unique experience in our profession. This is stuff that I just can't imagine ever <laughs> having to do. But it's only by virtue of the fact that a former student suddenly became super famous, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, she was already famous
2: beforehand. It's, it, it's this this, this, this yeah. royal family thing is... is yeah. Yeah, it's something. It's an industry, it is something.
1: That's like that's like the next. That's she just leveled up on the fame thing, right? That's really like you know, clink, clink, clink. she found the secret you know bar that you jump and you hit. If, you, know,
2: for, you know, for the podcast listeners who are passionate about you know theater history, criticism, and theory, uh, you know, she studied that stuff, right? You know, so she has in 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 her core uh, a. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an ability to engage theater um, uh, critically. Uh, she has an appreciation for its history. She can theorize theater. Um, and I'm happy about that.
0: I thought you were going to go with the you know study theater at Northwestern and you too can marry a world. Um, Sarah, what's your draft for this installment?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, I, I don't know why I always get like to follow uh, you know Harvey's like amazingness right it's like oh you know uh my my uh, you know
0: it's like i cleaned my office today
1: my yeah it's a sore tough of. <laughs> um my 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 draft is 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 again i mean I've done uh, very little uh productive work of my own this semester um but the upside is that I've been able to read a lot of other people's uh really wonderful work um some of some of which is my students some of which is uh junior colleagues um but uh but two projects that I'm particularly excited about that I wanted to share one is uh, Daniel Sachs' imagined theaters uh, that came out uh, last year, I believe, from Rutledge, is Mm. um, now going to be a website.
0: Oh, Um, I heard! I heard something um, about this.
1: Imaginedtheaters.com. dot com um, um, and uh, R E on the theater uh, and plural. so Proper, so, yeah. so Marvin Daniel. Carlson is happy. <laughs> um, and this is an online journal that kind of takes the central premise of, of that book, which was subtitled Writing for a Theoretical Stage, and it kind of extends it into, uh, you know, as Daniel says, new geographies, themes, and media. And so issue one is, um, is based in South Africa. Um, Australia will follow in March. Um, and I'm just, I think this is like a really exciting project, but also a, a really... Um, i think is a, is the future of the field i think you're going to see more projects that have legs and if you think mm-hmm. about you know how few books continue to 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 be you know reassigned and re reworked and and and, and sort of recirculated within the field um uh, some of which, I mean, I really love going back and discovering old stuff that I feel like should be recirculated more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for it wasn't whatever, for whatever reason, the idea of extending a project beyond what one can do in one monograph or even one edited collection, uh, I think is really exciting. And so uh, kudos to Daniel for for that project. And I'm excited to see what comes of it. And the other is just to just to highlight a book that I'm really excited uh, is going to be coming out next um Next spring from Northwestern University Press, which I have to say is like kind of like becoming one of my favorite catalogs. Like, I mean, you know, yeah, no offense to all the other thing. presses like Palgrave, Rutledge, I love you guys. University of Michigan, you will always have my my heart first and foremost. Um, but but Northwestern, you know, particularly in the last few years, has really done some exciting stuff. And uh, and the project that I'm really I'm really looking forward to is uh, is Miriam Felton Dansky's viral performances. Um, and this I think is a really compelling. Uh, study i was uh i think i i i have a little blurb on the back of it um you know i read it in, in an earlier form and i just i think it's it it blends together media and live performance in some really in some really compelling ways that that hopefully will answer some of panel's questions about why video games better and why meet why digital media and why non-presence uh is valuable than i've been able to you know on on uh, through our regular sessions together so uh, i think
0: you've answered it Con- perfectly well.
1: Well, yeah. congrats to, to Miriam for for that project. And, and I highly, I, I'll look forward to, to receiving it in printed form.
0: Phenomenal. Harvey, Sarah, thank you guys so much. Great to see you. And um, listeners, thanks for downloading and streaming.
2: Bye-bye. Until next time. Bye.
0: On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its Master's Program in Theater and Performance Studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at on Tap Podcast.